and welcome to the second day of the second week of Rare Book School. There will be films and videotapes shown tomorrow night. The schedule at the moment says 6 to 8. It will be 6.30 to 8.30 in order to catch the book illustration class, which is coming back from the Haven. Perhaps the most interesting of the films and videotapes being shown tomorrow night is the complete sequence, Alphabet, the Story of Writing, a four-part sequence, each of half an hour in length, two hours total, done under the uh, direction of the English calligrapher Don uh, Jackson and sponsored by the Parker Pen Company, but singularly or almost singularly free of advertising. It's a very good series indeed if you've not seen it, especially the middle two of the four. You might well like to do that. That will run from 6.30 until 8.30 with brief breaks in the middle tomorrow. Now, those are films, not videotapes, and they'll be shown in this room while we continue to show videotapes uh, against the films in 5.08. Our speaker this evening is an old friend of uh, both the School of Library Service and of Rare Book School, Wilman Spawn formerly conservator at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, now curator of bindings at Bryn Mawr College, taught a celebrated course. His students are probably still recovering from it. In Rare Book School 1984, on American book bindings to 1820 or thereabouts, Wilman arrived with three footlockers full of material for his students, and a very uh, splendid occasion it was. It's, it's uh, a great pleasure, as always, to have him back tonight speaking again on American bookbinding history. Wilman Spawn. Terry Bellinger, friends of Columbia Rare Book School, fellow students, it's a pleasure to share some of my thoughts on bookbinding history. Before we start, let me just check that we're going to be okay now. I did. There it goes. I did. outside once and it goes away. Oh, I see. Okay. Again and it starts. Okay, fine. Advance, you know. Okay, fine. Fine. Okay, thanks. When Terry invited me to speak this year, he said, please, Wilman, a general talk that everybody can understand. So I'm going to 
toe the line very carefully, but I will give you a little bit of background. There are a few of you who may not know anything about what I've been doing for 30 years besides working. But I can claim the Guinness Book of Records. I have recorded more American bindings than any other person living. My collection of rubbings now exceeds 20,000 American bindings. Now that's a rather large collection. And I get carried away. And there are those people who say, you really don't study binding history. You study decoration on bindings. No. I look at the whole book, and very much so. However, two years ago, I decided that three score and five years was long enough to work for a salary, and that I would then become a pensioner and spend all my time working on bookbinding history, because I thought it would take at least five years to get my 20,000 records into order to publish what I know. So for that reason, I took retirement from the Philosophical Society, I carefully arranged with Bryn Mawr College that I had official status there. I gave them my library, and they moved me out lock, stock, and barrel, and my wife said, thank God he's gone. I'm not home for lunch. Let me say in beginning that I am grateful for the binding historians who have gone before, for I could never have done what I've done had they not laid the groundwork. And we all are building on other people's knowledge. Bookbinding is an old craft that has seen very little change from the 15th century to the 18th century. It was transmitted by master to the apprentice and journeyman. And it was regulated in Europe by the guilds and in America by the associations of binders. What changes did occur occurred very slowly. And for that reason, if nothing else, it is very interesting that you can follow the progress of the slow changes that transpire. The organization of the binders themselves were very strong, and very early they printed fixed price lists in England as early as 1607, and a number of them into the 17th century and 18th century. And by the time the binders came to America, there was a very fixed cost for what you got for your price. Binding was early introduced to the colonies in Boston with the advent of the printing press, in Virginia before the advent of the printing press, and in Maryland at the arrival of the first printing press. Each of these cities can be identified, and very specifically. At the present time, more than 137 binders have been identified by us to specific cities and documented, not just one or two examples. In most cases, 25, 50, 100, or 1,000 bindings to a single shop. 
so that we can really prove the documentation of the work. For this reason, as I look back when I decided how I would extend the study once I started working full time, it became apparent to me that there were certain other elements that needed to be reviewed. And although I thought I had mined Mr. Aiken to the nth degree 20 years ago, I decided to rework all my identifications to see whether or not I, by any chance, had made too many assumptions in my original initial identifications. So let's look at what Mr. Aiken wrote to Reverend Belknap in 1783 when young Josie became his apprentice. I have entered him among my bookbinders, where I propose to continue him till he is bound. At the same time, as soon as his health can be trusted after the smallpox, I shall send him to an evening school to learn English grammar, writing, and spelling with some more practice at reading. I find his education in its present state somewhat imperfect for the printing business. Therefore, judge it to be more for his interest to do all I can to make him learn bookbinding in his younger days, which business requires nothing more than genius, that is, talent, and his present education is sufficient for it and easy to acquire in the time of youth. The printing business, no doubt, requires genius, but something more, viz. taste, a degree of head knowledge with some adequate education. As he has youth on his side, he may acquire the bookbinding, if industrious, and during the time given him a sufficient night school in order that he may become a qualified printer. By the time he has nearly finished the bookbinding, he will have a better education and his understanding better ripened for becoming a printer, which at that time of life he will comprehend the business with more ease and less teaching. If my advice is taken, I would have him in the printing business his main branch because it is most profitable and because it is esteemed above the level of a common handicraft. If every bookbinder was afterwards to learn printing work, I know it from my experience that if his education and taste is adequate for such employment, the bookbinder will give that tradesman a vast superiority over other printers who is ignorant of the binding of a book. First, he will know how to plan the printing of a book and may how many or fewer pages to suit any size of sheet of paper. He can figure the appearance in his head or fold it with his hands because it is his branch. Second, he will have taste to form a graceful page, make allowances for what the binder should cut off, and have the work elegant, and in short, will know the process of handling. Pressing and sorting paper together with the thorough knowledge of paper, quality and size, for such a purpose, actually, before he handles any type. I think that's a wonderful quote 
which I think gives you the idea of just what the view was that Robert Aiken held of bookbinding versus printing. It is a craft that you learn early. You never forget it. And you can always do it. And I have. I bound for almost 50 years before I retired, 49 to be exact. And I'm grateful for the training because I think I come to bookbinding history with a different viewpoint than most historians. I remember what I was taught, how to use tools, how to do things. And I know to this day there are certain things that I was trained 49 years ago that I still would do if I was asked to go to a bench and work. I never changed. And I would insist on anybody that I trained to do the same thing. Therefore, there is a long period before the apprentice becomes bold enough to become his own master and decide to make a change. And this is the underlying theme that I'm going to try to develop tonight to show you why I say convention into style, tracing bindings. Let us look at some slides. I will identify the book and also the collection that it's from. This is from the American Antiquarian Society. This is the uh, Nathaniel Morton, uh, Boston, 1669. Very elaborate gold tool. Boston binding, a very unusual one. <coughs> She's not pointed towards me and press it forward to see if we can get it. The little red lights look. Pennsylvania laws. 
this is from the Free Library of Philadelphia. Next. I need to focus. There. This is also from the New York shop of Bradford, uh, bound by William Bradford. Uh, on the Cadwallader called the American History of the American Indians, uh, 1725. Next. Focus. This is a binding by William Davies of Philadelphia on Ellis Pugh's Salutation to the Britons, 1728. Next. This is the Welsh Concordance of the Bible, printed by Keimer, Philadelphia, 1730, from Bryn Mawr College Library. Also William Davies. Next. This is the historical magazine printed by Franklin, 1741, uh, bound, I believe, in Burlington, New Jersey. Uh, for a long time, I associated these tools with the Bradford shop, but I now have reason to believe it's uh, Marmaduke Watson. Next. This is a binding by Focus on Tenant Sermons, Bridmore College Library, on the 1744 Bradford printing of Tenant Sermons, bound by Joseph Goodwin. He was a London binder who came over, was in Philadelphia from 1742 to 46. He died, and his tools are the first of a set of tools that went through a three-shop succession and were always kept together. And it makes it very difficult, unless you can find the documentation for the date of the actual binding, to be able to show, know which of the three shops the uh, binding came from. Next. This is a Christopher Sauer binding on Thomas Chalkley's uh, writings, printed by Franklin, 1749, bound by Christopher Sauer and sprinkled calf. Next. This is Stephen Potts uh, binding on the proceedings of the votes of the House of Representatives uh, filled up to 1752 in a typical calf binding with just the red title label on the spine. Uh, Franklin printed this in speculation of a large sale, and the sheets for this were still in stock after uh, the end of the Franklin Hall partnership, so that you find them in, in a number of different types of binding. This is one of the Philosophical Society bound by Stephen Potts. in this book is a single line fillet run four times along the spine edge there. But it's a, a style that was very typical of the man and when he 
could, he would continue to tool across, since he had the corners on the book, he would tool across. And on certain copies of books in marble paper, you'll notice that the line of the tooling goes right straight across the marble paper. This is uh, a copy of the essay on women printed by Robert Aiken and bound by Robert Aiken for one of the pens in green Morocco gold tool. This is a very elaborate binding of 1740, 1774, at a time when just before gold leaf became almost impossible to procure in Philadelphia. There's Robert Aiken at his best doing his chinoiserie binding on the Blair's rhetoric and the, the first book that I made an actual positive identification on. Mr. Aiken was not the best finisher in Philadelphia, although I'd like to think he was. Caleb Bugelis could far surpass him. And here's a binding on a book of hours that he bound uh, for the library company in 1793. This is the Federalist, bound in New York by Thomas Allen, 1788. Uh, these are from the American Antiquarian Society. Uh, this is the, the Book of Common Prayer, 1790, bound by James Muir in Philadelphia. Another one of our Scots immigrants who had a very successful career. This is a New York binding by Thomas Allen on the Brown's Family Bible, 1792, folio. This is the copy from uh, William Loring Andrews' Bibliopedia. Oh. Uh, this is the uh, William Thornton's Cadmus a presentation copy bound by Aiken and given by Thornton to the American Philosophical Society. This is the Boston Binding by Henry Bilson Legg on Washington's Legacies from the American Antiquarian Society, 1800. This is a New York Binding by Peter Messier on the Book of Common Prayers, New York, 1806. This is a New York Binding by George Champley, New York, 1820. And here's his ticket on the inside. Nice kind of thing you like to find, particularly when you know them book from the outside and you open it and find the proof inside that substantiates your attribution. Another Champlain binding from the Papantonio Collection, American Antiquarian Society. Wilson and Nichols, New York, for the celebration of the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825, bound by Wilson and Nichols. Oh, come on. And this is the first book in Mr. Papantonio's collection. This is the Elizabeth Emery's copy of the New York Mirror, Gold Tool by Christopher Brown. 
Christian Brown, uh, New York, 1838. Okay, fine. With 20,000 rubbings in home ensconced in Bryn Mawr's library and my books and reference books there, plus the access to the reference books at Bryn Mawr, I sat down to decide how I would continue. I hadn't thought of working full-time on binding until about three months before my retirement. I needed something to get me back into a lot of enthusiasm, and I felt I knew a lot about American binding. And James said, Wilman, you know, we ought to know what bindings we have in Bryn Mawr that we should have a catalog for. Would you be willing to survey the collection? And that seemed like an ideal way to survey the collection to see what they had. And since Bryn Mawr had the Goodhart collection, I began there because I hadn't worked on any Renaissance bindings since 1949 on trying to identify them. And I thought this will be a new thing to tackle. And it'll be stimulating for me because I'll be working in a new field. And I did. I began with Renaissance bindings. And for two years, I have recorded 2,000 Renaissance bindings at the University of Pennsylvania and at Bryn Mawr Library. And I've gotten carried away with it. It's, it's marvelous. I'm still working on American bindings. But this got me back into the idea of working long hours trying to make these identifications. And the first thing I began to realize, you know, there's a lot of parallelism between what went on in bookbinding in the Renaissance and what went on in 18th century America. I think I'm missing something. Although I can identify them and then I can document them in America, I'm wondering if there isn't another element that comes across between what the craftsman was doing and how things fit together. About this time, I got a phone call at Bryn Mawr. This is all within the first two months. And a bookseller said, Wilman, I have an interesting scrapbook of rubbings, and no one seems to know just what it is. I'd like to hire you as an expert to appraise it. And I said, no, I'm an interested party. Well, would you look at it? Yes, I said, I'll look at it, but I won't appraise it, because I know now from what you tell me I'm very interested in it. Indeed, I was. I bought it. It was immediately apparent exactly what we had found. We had found a binder's sample record of what he had bound. It was incredible. Not only had he bound them, he had made rubbings of them. He had seen bindings that he liked because he had tools that were similar, and he copied them 
It's his pattern book of a style of binding that he liked. I uh, went to James and I said, James, we've got to get this. I'll put up three sons for ransom. I'll sell my wife's services for nine more years because she's nine years my junior. But please, we've got to have this in Bryn Mawr. I said, the only thing I would say is, the longer I keep the book, the higher the price is going to be with the bookseller. So will you please negotiate the deal? And I will make a gift to Bryn Mawr that equals the cost of the book. He came back and he said, he wants to talk to you. And I thought, well, so I said, I would talk with him. And uh, I got on the phone. I said, yes, Bob, I want it. And uh, well, he said, how are we going to arrive at a price? He said, I don't know what I have. Well, I said, I know what you have, and I want it. I said, I, I believe that any man is entitled to a fair profit. Would you be willing to tell me what you paid for it? And I will tell you before you tell me what you paid for it that I'll double your money. He said, that's very fair. I will. I'll tell you exactly what I paid for it. So Bryn Mawr got it. <laughs> it was a very reasonable price. He doubled his money. He was happy. And the book arrived the next day, hand-carried. Now he said, I want to know what you know about it. Well, I said, I don't know who the other expert was that you showed the book to and who had it for three months, well, which time I knew it existed, but I hadn't seen it. Because I said, I don't know why he didn't know exactly what it was. Because I said, it's very apparent. He, this is not a setup. rubbing of the binding in there and down here. This is an actual impression made on paper with the tools. The book is filled with 109 designs, uh, 27 sketches, five embossed samples of that and a number of plain plaques 
And as you leaf through the book, it's incredible the sense of what comes. Now, I'm going to uh, hope this machine works again because I want to share with you 25 of these. Now this is all represents four years from 1831 to 1832 to 1836. The rubbings are not complete. They're done very quickly. Poems by Rogers, Italy by Italy by Rogers, the National Portrait Gallery by Neary, in four volumes, with an extra design for a different spine on top. Lord Byron's works, the National Portrait Gallery again, Scott's works, Waverly Illustrated, Works of Lord Byron. Summer London edition, Summer New York. Dryden's works. You see, he loves circles. Pilgrim of the Rhine. And here's some spine designs. About this point, I said to James, you know, I think we've just got to find these things. They must be around. And I, Michael Winship was in town, and I showed him this, and he looked at it, and he said, I had, I had that book in my hand last week. I invented the title. So he told me the title, Tuckerman. I went and looked it up. We had a copy of Brent Marr. We have one in the same binding. But there's no proof that the the copy of Bryn Mawr was it was on a Boston imprint. And I had no way of knowing whether it had been done by H and H Griffin. So I kept looking, and at Penn, I found this book with a panel that is not illustrated, but very similar to one that's in the book. And down here in the corner, believe it or not, it says H and H Griffin just the kind of proof I wanted. Here is an actual embossed cloth binding, so that he didn't do just leather bindings like this. He liked this style for everything. And therefore, here's an example that we found a cloth binding in a library. I then went to State College and found another book. That's the, that's the one at State College, which also is 
right, now we're back to the leather tool findings, curly cues, Scott's words, common prayer, iron, There are designs for five spines, including a sketch in the center. Ink sketch that he did. So that I began to see that there's a period of four years, and that's what his shop was turning out. He may have done other more conventional bindings, but certainly those books are distinctive enough that you can recognize them. Well, what I noticed among the Renaissance bindings was the same thing, that you have certain styles of bindings that fit a given period. Uh, something that I particularly got interested in is the hunting scene. In recording the bindings at Penn and Bryn Mawr, I found 13 different hunting roles. The deer, the dog, sometimes the man, sometimes not, with the gate or in the net and without. The span of years is 30 years between the earliest date and the latest date that I found it on. And it began to appear to me that perhaps a given design, a given decoration becomes fashionable. It is picked up and used for a given length of time. By the time a new design is created, somebody gets new tools, he rises to importance. One of the things that we had found in our work on Philadelphia and New York and Boston was that the man who had the biggest business at the time gets a set of tools, and he has all the business, the state business, the official publications, he does the laws. Immediately, the other binders who are coming into prominence buy tools exactly like the man who is prominent so that they can match his work. And therefore, there is a desire to ape the man who's got the business so that you can get the contract away. And it seemed to me that perhaps it, it takes 20 years or so. Well. In the abstract, I decided to see, is this true? Having cataloged all my designs of 5,000 designs used in America in the 18th century, I went through to find out how many tools were used for more than 20 years on multiple copies of a given title. Only three exceptions. In other words, the life of the average binding tool was about 20 years, except for where a tool suddenly turns up being used in an entirely different direction. We have a tool that belonged to William Davies that was on the Welsh Concordance, a very unusual tool. That tool disappears after a 15-year use and turns up in, from, in 1770 35 years after his death, on the board edge in another shop. 
and is only used on the board edge. So that I don't consider that being used in the same form. So what was very clear to me was that what was fashionable, what was stylish, what the convention of style was at a given time is very specific. And that I feel very comfortably now looking at a group of books and saying, hmm, that's New York, that's Boston, and a given 10-year period. And in fact, the last time I was working at the Antiquarian Society, I was reading the shelves in the binding collection, and the young lady said to me, I hear, Mr. Spawn, that you can date a book by its binding. I said, yes, I can. In fact, we'll take this next shelf, and I will tell you the date, and then I'll open the book. I got the whole shelf correct within a 10-year period. Because once you've seen the tools and seen enough examples, things fit into place. There's a difference in the weight of the tool of what was used in the 1760s and what is used in the 1790s. The same thing happens in 1820 and 1830. So that all needs to do is to look at enough books, accumulate enough records, that you can then find out what the style was for a given time. And it doesn't take you very long. A thousand books from the same period very quickly give you a sense of what was going on at a given time. I only regret that other people haven't had the opportunity that I've had to handle 30,000 books in 30 years and to see how characteristic this is because it's very evident that it's a very easy, easy approach to bookbinding history. What we need are more people out there gathering records. Now, James Thomas is very pleased to have me at Bryn Mawr. He's very generous in giving me time to go away and work in other collections. But he does want everybody to remember that Bryn Mawr has a great collection of bindings. We make them into cards, and we have cards to pass out to you. And this is the year of the bicentennial, and we hope you all come to Philadelphia and see the exhibition of the Constitution, and then come to Bryn Mawr and see the binding collection. It's marvelous. I'm having a ball there, and I'd love to show you around. Thank you. By way of evidence, here is the Philadelphia list of prices of the Journeyman Binders Association from the Library Company, 1825. There are copy, 50 copies of that here, so help yourself. And I do have the book here, <clears throat> handled with care, but you may look through and see it. And I have the rubbing of the two examples that I've actually found that prove that Mr. H. and H. Griffin did do addition work as well as hand binding. After you look at that, or uh, whenever I was going to speak for a glass of wine, 523.